Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. I see you grieving. I feel your pain. I don't know how you feel, but I'm here to help. I'm going to go back to my house and I'm going to get a ladder and I'm going to climb down there in that deep, dark hole of grief with you and sit with you in your pain, in your suffering. How did Hans Kohlberg choose to memorialize his daughter? How has her death changed his philosophy of life? And can post-traumatic growth help us process our grief? Welcome, friends, to the sixth season of Bereaved But Still Me. Our purpose is to empower members of our community. I am Michael Lieben and the father of three children, Idan, Sapir, and Liel. Liel, my youngest daughter, was born with a heart defect, and later she developed autism and epilepsy. Losing her at 15 is what has brought me here to be the host of this program. Here with us today is our guest, Hans Kohlberg. Hans is an author specializing in children's books and parenting books. He is a loving father of four children, Hansito, Sofia Lolita, Aviva, and Liliana, and prides himself on being a father first and foremost, cherishing every moment of his fatherhood journey. His greatest pleasures of parenthood are bringing smiles and joy to his children, and he loves watching them learn and grow. His beloved daughter, Aviva, passed away on November 18th, 2020, due to a still unknown heart defect. The untimely tragedy of losing Aviva at 10 months old has motivated Hans to share his beautiful story of her life, character, and personality through Baby Aviva Orangutan Diva and bring a smile to children all over the world, creating a positive impact while turning sorrow into inspiration. Hans, thank you for joining us on Bereaved But Still Me. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Start off by telling us about Aviva. Aviva was a ray of sunshine. She had a a zest for life. She was born in January of 2020, and she just eviscerated with a lot of personality, a lot of smiles. And what I, one thing, positive thing that came out of the COVID pandemic was that we were all working from home and I got to stay with her a lot. And through that really developed a very close bond with her, almost even more so than my other children. She was just full of personality, full of adventure, and also loved to eat. She had her father's stomach. And um, <laughs> I remember one of our road trips that we went on that year, we picked a, a bag of cherries from a stand and we continued driving and she was devouring that bag of cherries in the back. <laughs> and when we, when we stopped the next stop, she had this big, um, basically red cherry stains all over her face. And she looked almost like Dracula or something. So, <laughs> but that was just a little snippet of, of who she was. I mean, she just could light up a room and, and she brought joy to so many uh, people and, and still does you know, to this day to me. And so that's, that's really how I like to remember her. She sounds like a very, very happy child and sounds like she had a very happy, but short time with her father. We just spent basically all day together and she would sit there with me by my computer uh, (laughs) while I was working and she would go down to sleep very easily. Uh, She loved her two older siblings. They were doting on her from the time 
that she entered into this world in the hospital. They were just all over her <laughs> from the time she came out of the womb. She was very, very loved. And one pivotal thing that I'd like to say is, is love really never dies. Um, and so that love that I have for my daughter and still continues. That's, that's absolutely true. We said earlier that she passed away following her sixth hospitalization. Can you tell us a little bit about that? On her ninth day of life, she was having a little hard time uh, breathing, um, but also uh, wasn't really eating too well. And uh, she had woken up from a nap. We didn't really know what was off, but we knew something was off. She was uh, cold to the touch a little bit. And and so uh, we quickly got her temperature. It was down to 95 degrees, uh, which for a baby at nine days, that's uh, a very serious concern. And being third-time parents at this point, we rushed her uh, immediately to the ER. They brought her to the NICU. They realized that she had uh, bradycardia, which is essentially slow heart rate. Her heart rate went down to about 60 or 70 beats a minute. And so that was very dangerous. For so, those who don't know, what would be a good heartbeat for a newborn? So her age, usually around 150, 140, 150. 150. But she also had hypothermia, um, as I wow. said, low temperature. Um, and she was just having trouble breathing at, at times. And so overall lethargy, you know, not, not sucking, not eating. Um, mm-hmm. And this after having, you know, been well for the very first eight days of her life. And so they did an extensive amount of workup, even a spinal tap, which is a lumbar puncher in, in her back um, to see if she had meningitis, had DNA tests and uh, genetics, mm-hmm. brain scans, et cetera. After a week in the NICU, she had recovered by day three or so fully, uh, was eating fully. And the doctors were perplexed. They said, we really don't know what's wrong with Aviva, but she looks fine with us now. And so they released her without any diagnosis and with a plan to follow up. Eventually she had the same bout. Basically she experienced the same uh, symptoms about three months later. So this time she's almost four months old and certainly more concerned this time because this is a repeat. And uh, we saw everyone from cardiologists to neurologists to pulmonologists to uh, every single type of diagnostic x-ray, you know, brain scan, heart scan, EKG. Nothing was obvious and nothing was very telling. All, all of the physicians conferred with each other and they couldn't come up with any kind of diagnosis why she was having these bouts, bouts of lethargy. And so that was just frustrating for us. It was the same experience that let us go about five days later again, with doctors scratching their heads and really no answer uh, in sight. And so uh, we continued to do you know, more genetic testing, but she had another bout a couple months later. And then again, another uh, month later after that. So by the time she was six months old, she already had four hospitalizations, didn't have a diagnosis. And at this time we were kind of checking out the house to see if there's any environmental factors. Oh, that's that- interesting. Did, did I've never consider that as an option. Is that something that can happen? Uh, something environmental? Yeah, because they ruled out, you know, genetic and her organs were working well and mm-hmm. neurology and cardiologists all said her heart's working fine outside of these episodes. And they usually happened right after her nap time. So. And just as these things came, they left and nobody could explain it one way or the other. My career is actually in, in data and, and uh, as a data scientist, as an economist, just really trying to understand you know, why they can't use a lot more data in medicine to a fuller extent. There's a lot of reasons behind that. Uh, I won't get into that now, but in terms of trying to come up with a diagnosis, we realized we were just dependent on the knowledge and wisdom of all of these doctors that were in front of her, but we don't know. And we still don't know if there might be somebody else out there, some other 
child that would have had the same symptoms, same patterns, essentially, that we could have at least gotten diagnosis, uh, if not a prognosis. Outside of being the parent who does five minutes on Google and calls it research, you actually do research. Is there a way that you could have found out other data on similar instances or is it just not reported? It's impossible if you know a lot about you know the healthcare system with HIPAA, with EHRs, which are electronic health records. Mm-hmm. A lot of that data is kind of stored and captured and, and not to be seen anywhere else um, oh. other than those particular EHRs. And so even we, we went to three different hospital systems and, and the data uh, on her last visit, her sixth visit, and I'll catch you up to speed. So we eventually <laughs> moved from Oakland to San Diego, San Diego, we thought would be a, a fresh new start. There's no environmental factors. You know, that was the last thing we were kind of hinging our hopes on. Right. Um, and for four months, she didn't have any episodes. I mean, every single time in the interval time period, she was a perfectly healthy, happy, smiling, joyous baby girl. She was crawling. She was starting to kind of walk, holding onto furniture. But sure. but then eventually in, in November of 2020, she had another episode. Brand new team of doctors, uh, this time in San Diego, which which has a really nice, uh, really good pediatric hospital. But in, in terms of coming up with diagnosis, they were actually even having difficulty getting her records from Oakland, wow. California, where they had a different EHR. And so this was painfully obvious flaw in the health system. system sure, yeah. Especially. These wow. doctors didn't even see what her history was. There's manual and you can fax and different things, but it's not a very transparent system. And so she was actually released even two days after uh, she, she recovered fully within, I would say 10 hours, eight hours after being admitted uh, to the to the ER this time. And so we thought this might be a recurring prospect in her life. At this point in time, five episodes, full recoveries after each time, we were almost to the point, to the mindset of, of kind of saying, this is something she'll have to deal with the rest of her life. But we know that it's not necessarily fatal. In all of those circumstances, probably the first one was the scariest at day nine. By the fifth time, we're like, well, this is something that we'll just have to kind of deal with and, and be on alert for, even though she, at that time she didn't have a diagnosis. And so 10 days later, after being released from the hospital, she became pretty sick. She was throwing up. So that was outside of one other occurrence in her life. Uh, first time she was really throwing up vomit to that particular extent. The nanny who was taking care of the other kids had been sick with a little bit of flu. So we kept her away, but we thought that maybe she caught a bug from a person inside the house. And so we thought maybe this is just a kind of flu-like symptom. She's right. throwing up. Just typical it baby of, stuff. I mean, it wasn't really stopping. There, there was intermittent periods where it was stopping, but it became so much that she started throwing up her bile. And so we knew she didn't have anything else in her system. And we took her to urgent care this time. We didn't even take her to the ER, but she, and she was kind of in fine shape. She wasn't displaying the same lethargic symptoms as last time, but for good measure, they rushed her to the ER actually in the ambulance this time. And baby Aviva was recovering. She was, she was eating a graham cracker. She was sipping on a straw of water and we thought she would come back. And then all of a sudden her heart rate just started dropping. They had been monitoring her potassium levels. If you know anything about potassium is basically what they use in the syringe for the death penalty. It basically just stops your heart rate. The average range is something around 3.5 to 5.5. Um, I forget the units, but in terms of the death penalty, it's usually around seven. If it gets to seven, it's almost fatal. Hers were approaching six, six and a half. Oh um, and, and, and then all of a sudden her heart rate just, just started dropping down to this time, 20, 
10 and eventually stopped. She basically experienced a cardiac arrest. Her organs just started shutting down. Oxygen wasn't getting to the brain. They were performing emergency CPR, everything else that they could do. They eventually put her on an ECMO machine, which replaces the, it basically simulates what the heart would do, but her heart just wasn't pumping. This time her potassium levels actually got up to as high as 12. It was the most agonizing, excruciating time period. I had already been at home at this time because we were there for about four hours and and mom told me, go back home to take care of the other kids. And so I'm coming back to the hospital, rushed back there. And my wife is screaming in the ER. And, and even at this point in time, even as dire as that situation was, I, I thought there must be a hope. There must be a way there. Yeah, sure. As soon as the doctor came out and said, her heart's not working, not, I just fell to the ground and, and just let out a scream. And, and, and just the next 24 hours, we were just hoping and praying for a miracle, staying with her in the hospital. They kept us there, even with COVID and everything, we were right there with our daughter. But after about 20 hours or so, they just said, there's nothing that we can do. Her brain wasn't showing any kind of activity. Her heart wasn't able to pump. And it's a parent's worst nightmare. And uh, for, for all of those that have been there, it's just excruciating, excruciating to talk about, to think about. But they gave us some time with her after they took her off machines. And we got to bathe her. We got to clothe her. got to sing to her. I was holding her in my arms and I told her daddy doesn't know what went wrong and what her diagnosis was even at this point in time but I'm going to do everything I can to make you proud to make my Aviva proud and that was my promise to her whether it's helping other parents that that are going through something similar making sure that this doesn't happen again where this can be preventable but more than anything else it's a promise to her that's really changed my whole perspective on life in terms of what's really important and we talk about what is your ultimate goal or what is the purpose of life or what, whatever it is. There's big questions that are hard to answer. But for me, it's, it's very, very simple. And, and at that point in time, and still to this day, it's making my daughter proud. You are listening to Bereaved But Still Me. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at bereavedbutstillme.com. That's Michael at bereavedbutstillme.com. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. Hans, how did you come to write Baby Aviva Orangutan Diva? But before you answer that, the burning question, tell us about Aviva's name. Make me happy. Yeah, so Aviva's name is, is definitely very special to me. It almost sounds familiar, but it's, it's really unique. Aviva is it's actually a Hebrew origin name. It, it means springtime or rebirth or, or new life. It was actually inspired by one of my favorite books of all time. It's, it's called The Source. It's a James Michener book. It's about the Holy Lands, essentially, and, and the whole history of the Holy Lands from all the Abrahamic uh, religions. And there's a character in that book named Aviva. And the more I thought about her name, I, I really loved it, loved the significance, loved the meaning. Also loved the spelling, which is, is a palindrome, A-V-I-P-A. Ah. And when written in, in capital letters, it almost looks like mountains and valleys. And ah. the A and the V and the V and the A represent 
almost symbolically the highs and lows of, of life and the challenges and you know, good times and bad times that we deal with in life in and of itself. And, and obviously, I did not have any kind of foresight to really understand what would occur. But at this point in time, it's certainly you know, looking back for me, the perfect name and for my wife, the perfect name for, for Aviva. I'm going to add one little thing to that. I think, first of all, it's a beautiful name for a girl. It's so full of hope and, and uh, optimism. In Jewish tradition, we say that your name is who you are, uh, that names aren't accidental. And so the hills and the valleys and the trials and tribulations and the goodness and, and the difficult t- times altogether, absolutely perfect name. Now, tell us about Baby Aviva Orangutan Diva. Yeah, so Baby Aviva, Orangutan Diva is a children's book. It's really inspired by my desire to really see her go out into the world and really make a positive impact on other people. Obviously, she's not here in person to do so. But for every parent, every father, and I share this perspective, I really want to see my children grow and succeed in whatever they do, but also, most importantly, make a positive impact on people around us, on your community, with your short time that you have here on earth. And so Baby Aviva Rangatan Diva is really one way that I'm basically getting a positive message across to children, two to eight-year-olds. They would have had that experience of really getting to know Aviva through the book. They're able to do so, not in person, but through the messages written therein. And so it's got a lot of positive messages, but the overarching one is really being true to yourself. So it's about this orangutan that really faces off against a really ferocious beast of the jungle, this tiger. And she uses her own skill sets and her underlying strengths, which is really singing and dancing and bringing joy to others to really charm this ferocious beast, charm this tiger to the point where they're singing and dancing by the end of the book. I guess I gave away the ending there, but... Spoiler um, alert, if there are any eight-year-olds <laughs> listening to this program, I think yeah. you're fine. <laughs> I think you're fine. Yeah. But in terms of how she does it, it's really the manner by which she carries herself and really finds her inner strength and beast and, and is true to her herself. And I think that's a message that, especially in this day and age, when we deal with a lot of mental adversity and a lot of different challenges, especially mm-hmm. with our youth, it's really important to kind of remembering who you are and understand that no matter what challenge comes your way, even a challenge like this, there's ways that you can embrace that process. So yeah. that's a very sweet story. I totally recommend it to anybody who has small children get this book. Did you do the illustrations in, in the book yourself or did you have somebody do that? No, I, I didn't. So I, I uh-huh. cannot take credit for that. I actually was able to collaborate with a former illustrator from Scholastic Books. His name is Carl Mefford and he's he's just done a really fantastic job. And, and we really kind of worked together on the paginations, the illustrations, even the character baby Aviva Rangitan Diva herself we had about five different iterations, which we went through. And, and there's a lot of hidden meaning and a lot of illustrations. One is her kind of surfing down a tree in the jungle. And I, I always wish I could have surfed with her. I, I do surf out here in California, but just little things like that. There's a picture of a heart made out of leaves, but it was really cool to work with him. And then, you know, for me, helping me through my grieving process, it's really helped me share her story and her light, her life, her love with children and being able to go to schools, being able to, even on Zoom calls, read to children, see their faces light up, see them you know, dancing with joy in the parts where they dance, brings me a lot of healing, brings me a lot of joy, you know, knowing that she can still have an impact posthumously. It's a gift that keeps on giving and I'll continue writing. We actually have our second book. Don't know when the release date is yet, but it's complete. So we'll see. 
as you can tell, I love children and I love writing, but uh, I really love telling stories to kids. Every, every time I put the kids to bed at night, they always ask for a different story. And obviously there's only so many fairy tales and <laughs> children's stories. So it, I end up ad-libbing and kind of improvising oh, on the spot. So wait, you know, a father who can ad-lib a story at night. <laughs> I ask them for different characters. So I get race car and then I get a unicorn and then somehow make a story about <laughs> a race car and a unicorn going through some challenging circumstance and, and then usually uh, a happy ending. If you've enjoyed listening to this program, please visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.org and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com. For information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much much more. That's one of the things that we've learned from doing this podcast for years and years and years is a term called post-traumatic growth, which is where somebody goes through a traumatic experience, but then actually grows from the tragedy and gets stronger from it. How do you feel that you've grown since you lost Aviva? To answer that question, which is a very deep question. um, We do that that here. (laughs) (laughs) First, one has to embrace the grieving process. First and foremost, I think you're making sure you take the time necessary to really go through the full gamut of emotions that you feel, the anger, sadness, the shock, denial. Obviously, I'm, I'm listening to stages of grief, but there's no generic order. There's a lot of really, really visceral emotions that one feels after they lose their child. And the mindset mentality that I went into it was really, I guess I would say do grief and really trying to embrace grief as much as I could. And that meant taking six months off of work. That meant seeing a therapist. That meant going to grieving groups, compassionate friends being one of them, but church groups and others, reaching out to other people I know, contacts of contacts that had lost children as well, understanding their perspective, reading books, reading 30, 40 different books on grief and the afterlife. But I think the one thing that I would say is really patience, being patient with myself and and taking self-care, which is one of the things my therapist was really harping on about, you know, making sure that I don't rush into things that don't do too much. The guilt and the blame that that a parent feels is very natural. Yes, it is. But please people don't beat yourselves up. Yeah. And and it's hard, it's hard not to do. I think the natural thing is to beat yourself up. Um, And and that's why I'm saying this. It's all been there. Yeah. Yeah. It it takes, takes a lot of, I would say time and, 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 cognizance of, of really trying to understand that in order to heal, first of all, in order to heal, you have to feel. And in order to do that, you need to take that time and that space. You know, grief takes a lot of work. And, and I'm not saying that there's, there's a right way. I'm not saying that I did it right way. But what I would say is there's thousands of different ways to grieve. There's no right way, but there is a wrong way. That sounds different, but the wrong way is actually not necessarily letting yourself feel and, and actually just shunning it away and put it in, right, right. you know, putting it in a closet and not, not feeling those emotions because from people I've talked to books, I've read everything I've seen is really 
if you don't deal with it, it comes back later in your life and it's hard. How much of that do you think is societal when people say, get back to work, get it back on the horse, you need to run, you need to work, you need to do, Mm -hmm. or or, aren't you over it already or stop crying? Mm -hmm. So how much of that is societal that we just don't know where to go or what to do? Mm -hmm. I think in general, society doesn't understand grief, period. And you don't really understand grief until you really know what it is. And child loss in particular I would go out on limit here and say it's it's almost the the hardest uh, not to not to compare any type of grief, but yeah, sure, um, sure. even my own mother said I should get back to work and, and why am I taking so much time off, et cetera. And it's just it's very frustrating. At that point in time, she's putting her own perspective ahead of what am I really feeling and how am I really doing? There's something normal um, about that though, because people will talk to you from their perspective. Some of the more kinder people will try to see your perspective, but in the end, we can only look at you through our own eyes. And people who have not been through this, who may run a short simulation, say, well, I would get back right away. They might not if it really happened to them, but that's a real issue because Mm -hmm. you're interacting in this greater world around you that's got all this pressure on you to move. How do you stand up to that? I mean, you took six months off. That's amazing. How did you do that? I definitely applied for medical leave of absence, given that I definitely was not in the mindset to go back to work. And at at that point in time, everything else seems trivial. Uh, Nothing really matters when it comes to, hey, I, I don't have a child here. I don't have the future that I envisioned. And how can I be doing something in the present now that that's just very trivial on that? But so I was fortunate enough to work for a company that I got a couple months off and then I took unpaid leave as well. But I just felt like I needed that time. Going back to your point about people putting their own perspective rather than understanding the griever with compassion and empathy, there's an analogy of a griever that kind of falls into a well, it feels like this deep, dark hole that you're yep, yep. sitting down there in, in the well. And, and there's people that come along. There's two types of people. There's the first type, which is more common type. They look down that well, they say, how are you doing? Is there anything I can do? Um, you know, be strong. You're so strong, right? You know, yeah. I, I can go on about you know the phrases that shouldn't be said, but, but they, <laughs> yeah. they emote a lot of concern, and then they leave you in the well and and right. never to return uh, or check in again. And and then there's the other type of a friend, and I've really found some strong friends. It's, it's been a very interesting reaction amongst my whole social circle. But <laughs> but there's another type of friend that comes and sees you down the well and says, I see you grieving. I feel your pain. I don't know how you feel, but I'm here to help. I'm going to go back to my house and I'm going to get a ladder and I'm going to climb down there in that deep, dark hole of grief with you and sit with you in your pain, in your suffering. And when you're ready, I'll help you climb out of that hole. And those friends are few and far between. And that is the very, very special type of person but I also think that it's it's the type of person that the world needs more of in general. Yep. We need to really understand grief from a different perspective and not something that you should only have three days of bereavement leave or et cetera. It's, you know, it's something that we kind of have to feel, have to experience it to really feel it. But I think there could be a lot more education on grief in general. There's a lot of societies and cultures that do better jobs of it. The U.S. in general I would say it's lacking in that knowledge. I just want to say here, you left out the third guy who comes along and looks at you in the well and says, what did you do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And bl- yeah. yeah the, the, the blame, the blame on, on a, on a parent is never, you know, that is never a welcome <laughs> saying. So. No, but it's everywhere. How did losing Aviva change your philosophy of life? Obviously mm. you're not the same person you were before. 
it really kind of starts with what is my North Star? What is the ultimate thing that I'm going to do here on this earth? And I would say it was almost a rebirth for me in terms of understanding what's really important. So how I spend my time is much more valuable now than even before. And even though I cherished my children before, and I really love being part of their development, it's something that I don't take for granted at all, day in, day out, the hard days, the stressful days, the times that the kids are on the floor in a public supermarket and screaming and crying because they're not getting something or when they're throwing temper tantrums. Those are times when as a parent, I step back and say, I'm fortunate. I'm lucky. I'm actually lucky that I get to deal with this oh, headache man. with my kids because they're here. They're, they're here. I, I wish Aviva was here to throw a temper tantrum. I wish she was here to wake me up at three in the morning. Those things that you think as a parent are the nuisances of parenthood, they all of a sudden become blessings. And they're the things you miss when they're older. Trust me on that. Yeah. You do not really understand that perspective until you kind of live through that. But what I'd like to impart to your listeners is that you do not have to go through that. I don't want anyone to go through no. loss, but but what I do want is to kind of impart that perspective and really cherish your children and and yes. Um, yeah. So if people know, can learn from your experience without having it, that would be a, a beautiful thing for you to give to them. Certainly. And so embrace them with love. And so that's on the family side in terms of how I spend my time, but I've had a whole complete different career change even, as well as being able to speak to you about grief and really in some small way, if this gets out into the ears of, of one listener and they have a different perspective about grief, then that's a win for me. And, oh, and that's for sure. You know, that's Don't worry positive. about it. You, you yeah. made it. You made, you made that. I can give you one for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Mission accomplished, but, um, but no, and that's part of it. And there, there's a whole number of different things from children's books to these podcasts to, but basically even the simple things, bringing a smile to somebody, walking down the sidewalk and seeing a parent, maybe with a young infant and giving them a smile and saying, you're doing a great job. That is such a uh, joy to me and something yeah. that, I, that I try to kind of live every day. And some of the other parents would appreciate, believe me. Yeah. We all yeah. think we're alone out there with our kids screaming and running up and down and making a scene. And no, 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 you're doing a good job. You're not exactly. alone. Yeah. Before we conclude, because we've got to land this plane, tell me more about your website and where people can find your book. Yeah, my website is very simple. It's hanskulberg.com. So it's H-A-N-S-K-U-L-L-B-E-R-G.com. I'm actually most active on social media on Instagram. So this is a new thing for me as well, but it's a, it's a way that I get to share my daughter with the world. And so my handle is at Aviva's dad. So A-V-I-V-A-S-D-A-D. And I say that because it's really important that I'm still known as Aviva's dad because I don't get to hear that very often. Those are the two places to really find me. And you can check out the book. It's on Amazon. It's on basically any kind of book outlet that you get your books. It has been a number one bestseller and it's something that gives me a lot of joy. So if you really like it, you know, feel free to leave a review. I hope you enjoy it with your kiddos or your grandkids or nieces or nephews. It's a labor of love. And so I put a lot of joy into it. Well, we're coming into port. I would just tell everybody again, the book is Baby Aviva Orangutan Diva. Get this book, read it to your children. And that concludes this episode of Breed But Still Me. I want to thank Hans Kohlberg for sharing his experience and wisdom with us. Thank you, Hans, for being with us. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Please join us at the beginning of every month for a brand new podcast. I'll talk with you soon, but until then, please remember, moving forward is not moving away. 
Thank you for joining us. We hope you have felt supported in your grief journey. Bereaved But Still Me is a monthly podcast, and a new episode is released on the first Thursday of each month. You can hear our podcast anywhere you normally listen to podcasts at any time. Join us again next month for a brand new episode of Bereaved But Still Me.